Getting married is an event that holds a different meaning for everyone. For some, it's based on religious traditions, and for others, it's a validation of an earlier choice they made to live with that special someone they love. Hi, I'm Lauren, and welcome to Choosing Your Reflection, a series of discussions that reflect upon the reasons we have for choosing our wedding day outfits. Our guests are diverse, but they all share a common journey. As they share their stories, they'll help us unravel the mystique that exists around choosing that special outfit and what they learned about themselves along the way. This week, we are thrilled to welcome Lincoln Noel, also known as the Maestro. Lincoln has decades of experience as a performer and always delivers a royal experience for brides and grooms worldwide. Lincoln, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your wedding story? Yes, my name is Lincoln Noel. I'm 54 years old. By definition of occupation, I am a jobbing pianist. I have been a professional pianist for 33 years. You can tell by my voice I'm British. I was born in Northampton, and uh, I live in Northampton now. To get a a sense of where I am, uh, for the listeners, my home and where I'm sitting is five minutes away from the resting place and the ancestral home of Princess Diana, the Princess of Wales, who I was fortunate enough to know before she became world famous and uh, married Prince of Wales, who, of course, is the heir to the throne. She was our president at the Royal Academy of Music, where I studied. I majored in piano and violin. Your background in music is so extensive. Could you tell me a little bit about your personal growth through music and where you started and where you are now? Yes, absolutely. I started playing the piano when I was three years old and uh, uh, with my father. He acquired a piano to teach himself. I looked over his shoulder and decided I wanted a piece of the action. A year later, he decided I was embarrassing him by leaving him behind. Um, Here in England, we start at the age of four at school. So when I had my first day at school was my first day of piano lessons. I literally went to the primary school, crossed the road in St. James to my piano teacher. I started piano with her at four. I stayed with her till I was 16. I got a scholarship to study for two years in London. And then I entered the Royal Academy of Music where I was um, a student. I had an opportunity to play in the West End. London. Um, the listeners may not know, but I'm a Afro-Caribbean ethnicity, although British born and uh, bred, as they say over here. Uh, my parents are from the West Indies and met literally in the street where I had my first piano lesson. But I lived in London for six years before studying at the academy. So my professional debut was in 1987 on a show about an American called Paul Roten, and I was portraying his pianist, Lawrence Brown, so that was my entry in. I'm also a piano tutor, and uh, I have performed and taught side by side for the last, well, we're in year 33. So uh, I performed in West End, uh, accompanied opera singers and ballet companies. All the way through that journey, I have played weddings, which became more and more of a thing um, from the age of 25. I decided to base myself back in Northampton. I felt that uh, there was as much work to be done in Middle England, as we call it, in the provinces as there is in the capital. Lots of musicians down there. And I knew very quickly that I didn't want to just play the same music every night in a West End show. Much as I enjoyed it, 
I have played on the concert platform many times, performed for the Queen at the Royal Albert Hall, performed for Diana at the Duke's Hall, and I've performed for the Duke and the Duchess of Gloucester at the Draper's Hall, which is in the city of London, um, and met uh, Princess Anne in my role as a music therapist for the National Autistic Society. Um, I perform also for an organisation called Music and Hospitals, who take the concert experience all over England, Scotland and Wales to people who cannot get to the concert hall. Such an impressive background and continued work. Our listeners can't see what you're wearing, but you look fantastic. You look so sharp. You You have a very wonderful sense of style. So I would love to know your wedding journey, but also the journey that you had picking out what you were going to wear for your wedding. Wow. Yeah. I did my first wedding when I was 13 years old. I played for the first time in public when I was six years old. I have always worn certain tie, bow tie and tuxedo. I made the tuxedo a rule in 1998. I always present myself as if I'm going to give the best performance possible. So I made reference to the fact that I'm playing for the Queen. And people always say, well, if the Queen was here, I would wear my best dress or my best suit. So I've decided that everybody I play to is royal. So with reference to the brides and grooms, I always tell my brides that they are going to be my princess for that day. And I will bring my top drawer wardrobe to the situation. I always feel I should wear cufflinks, double cuff shirts. It's not an American thing. But here in Britain, we like to wear our double cut shirts and wear cufflinks. And um, it feels complete. And I want people, when they see me play, to feel that every performance for them matters to me. So my clothes are saying, this situation matters to me. And I'm dressed appropriately. I'm not going to wear a T-shirt and jeans and look as if I was watching The Simpsons on TV. And someone said, hey, Lincoln. And you play the piano. And I said, okay. And then I looked as if I just happened to be eating a pizza and swinging a, a bottle of Budweiser. And I just happened to hit a piano. And I think sometimes that a lot of musicians, especially when they're playing in certain environments, there's nothing to do with the music or integrity. It was all about the image. And I think that uh, clothes present an image. People listen with their eyes. I've just been playing on tape and my piano is open. Uh, so you can see the hammers. It's a visual experience. So I'm playing away, and you can see the piano working, and people get taken in with that. Whenever I'm playing in a tuxedo, I wear a black and white tie, which has got white piano keys on. People love little quirks like that. You know, I probably have been wearing a bow tie for the last 10 years. Now, in reference to my own wedding, we decided that we were going to have a black tie ceremony. We got married in 2005. My wife's mother is a seamstress, so she had in her head what sort of dress she wanted. She wanted a dress a little bit like Princess Diana's dress, very puffy and huge and a long train that goes through several time zones. And I wanted to wear a tuxedo, so I had a white tuxedo made, so it didn't look as if I was going to work, because it looked as if, okay, Lincoln just happens to be getting married today, and he looks like he's going to play the piano anyway. So I wore a white tuxedo and I wore a bow tie. And when I sit to play the piano, I wear a piano tie and I wear a black tuxedo. And I've always made it a very clear distinction that I will never wear 
a white tuxedo on the concert stage. So if I'm going to perform on the concert stage, I'll wear tails, I'll wear a tuxedo, or I'll wear a lounge suit, but I'll never wear a white tuxedo because that's what I got married in. Um, and we wanted to present um, a, a very smart wedding. Now, experience had taught me that not everybody can come to your wedding in a tuxedo. There are some people for whom just getting there will be enough. There are some people who have never seen a shirt and tie. So if they wear a shirt and tie, that is a championship achievement. And if they manage to get to the higher shop to get the tuxedo with the stud shirt and the wing collar and the bow tie, then great. When I was at the Royal Academy of Music in London, when you play events, you're playing for the, the, the hoi polloi, the upper classes, the middle classes, those sort of people that are used to drinking champagne and talking about nonsense for 20 minutes with a glass of wine in their hands. There's a certain sect of society who can do all of that. They're taught that at their schools. They're taught how to wear a tuxedo. The officers in the army are taught how to wear a lounge suit, part of being a gentleman. And I learned from playing weddings from day one. My very first wedding, as a 13-year-old boy, I expected a princess from floating past me as I played. Here comes the bride. And what I got was a girl who was as wide as she was tall, didn't look particularly beautiful, and her father, who gave her away, he looked like he was watching an episode of The Simpsons because he had a cardigan on, and it's as though somebody said, Derek, you've got to give your daughter away. And he said, all right, I'm coming now. And he put a jacket on over his cardigan, and the jacket didn't match the trousers, that didn't match the cardigan, that didn't match the shirt, which didn't match the tie. But I was kind of surprised that this chap came in to give his daughter away on her big day, and probably his big day, and he chose to wear that. And I am fascinated that there are people who will turn up who can barely manage to do shirt and tie and a jacket. So with that experience in my mind, I said to my wife, a black tie wedding is a great idea, but don't expect everybody to manage the dress code. And so if they've put a brush through their hair and they turn up on your big wedding day, they think, you know, that's their best. And I prepared my wife for this and said, as we are standing there looking at 300 people, there's going to be more wildlife looking back at us than you can find in the Amazon jungle. So just accept that. But everybody's smiling and everybody's happy for us. So just remember the narrative is that there are lots of people who we invited who couldn't be bothered to be there. And there are some people who have gone absolutely overboard. Here in England, we've got Marks and Spencers and Selfridges and House of Fraser. Do you get the invitation? You know what it's like, girls. What are we going to wear? Well, what are we going to wear? And you've got 700 outfits you could wear, but you've got to get another one for this one. Because you'll look at one another and go, you know what? If we turn up in this one, they've seen this one before. Now, one of my roles in most of the weddings I do is I act as a master of ceremonies. So before the deputy superintendent registrar and the registrar addresses the people to start, I'm the person who will stand up and say, hello, good afternoon, and welcome to this wedding, which will be taking place at uh, Billy Smith's Chapel on the hill in the village of Billytonia. My name is Lincoln now, blah, 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 blah. And I will always speak well and look smart because as I look out, most of those ladies have probably spent three hours in front of the mirror 
worrying about which hair is at 10 to 2 and which hair is at 5 to 1. So when I come looking splendid, they will look at their bedazzled, battered husbands and say, do you know what, darling? It was worth it. It's about the value. Because for some of those people, this might be the only time they get to smash the budget in three years to get a nice frock. So this is a moment of escapism. It's a huge adventure. You know, the first wedding I did, I was watching the football, or you say the soccer. The vicar picked me up, took me to the church, and they went to a place called the Adventure Club, and they were probably home by six. You know, you guys, you've got the pre-show, then you've got the ceremony, which is the show, then you've got the drinks, and then you guys have got something you call cocktail hour. And that's not even the dinner. Everybody looks sophisticated as if they do this every single day. But everybody, without exception, and I'll include the Queen of England in that, sits at home picking rubbish from between their toenails, watching soaps of the day or the football or the baseball or whatever it is, or their videos or their films. And they are wearing scruffy gear, no makeup, and they don't want to ask the door just in case anybody sees that they haven't brushed their hair. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah? So when I got married, I knew that I was going to give everybody an opportunity to wear their best clothes. I wanted everybody to wear their best clothes, look their best, and celebrate looking their best. Because everybody has their own narrative. And then they'll come and enjoy my do, eat my food, and dance so much that they limp home. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's all about the experience in the moment. I call weddings the 24-hour Olympics. Because there's all this planning that goes before, you know, and I haven't even spoken about the music. The girls will turn me inside out. I've got this album by Michael Jackson. I've got this one by Lionel Richie. I've got this one by Fred Smith. And I've got this one by Bruce Springsteen. And my mum wants something from The Wizard of Oz. And my dad wants something from Hamilton. And my cousin wants something from The Lion King. And my third bridesmaid and my fourth usher wants something from Aladdin. And I'm scribbling away like an idiot to get it all in. My expertise is that I can drop stuff in the day so that everybody feels happy and everybody feels involved because it's important for everybody. Because at the end of the day, the bride isn't sitting there with a clipboard ticking off the tunes on blank. She's too busy enjoying herself, hopefully, and living the wedding. I love everything that you've said. I think it's absolutely on the nose and in the best way possible, pointing out the reality that your best and my best might not be everyone else's best, but setting that example is so important because it sets the stage. It sets a precedent. And not only that, it just makes you feel better. Like, you know that you dressed your best and you know that everyone else here has, even if it's not your best, they've dressed their best. Because if you see that guy with a cardigan now with a shirt, you know, a jacket over his cardigan and he didn't really try very hard, that is his best, I guess, you know, like, yeah. and that's okay. You started talking about the music choices and I would, I feel like choosing your music in addition, like choosing your outfit, we like to say is choosing your reflection. But I feel like a lot of choosing your reflection also comes through the music and you talked a little bit about uh, brides throwing all these different songs at you and all these different people throwing different ideas. I wonder how that sort of sets the tone, like an outfit sets the tone for a person. How do you think that complements the tone for the actual wedding? It's interesting. There's the reality 
and then there's what's in somebody's head. I believe that when you're walking down the aisle that you should have something processional. My first question to a girl is, are you wearing a bridal gown? Now, some girls will want to tell me what they're wearing and I want to get giddy and excited. I become the big brother to all my girls or the honorary big sister or the honorary best friend because I'm a guy. So she's not in competition with me and I'm neutral. She can see that I'm married and I've got kids and I've been around the track. So, you know, she can tell me anything. I'm not going to misread the narrative. If a girl shows me her dress and it's, you know, we've all seen Say Yes to the Dress. That is a program that uh, we love to watch. I mean, uh, my wife loves dresses, obviously, because of her mum as a seamstress. She's been a bridesmaid six times before she got married. My girls love dressing up. And we love the psychology of how, you know, the, the average scenario is you've got your bride. She comes with her mum. She's got a chief bridesmaid. And one of them has got a very, very big opinion of themselves. Um, but I'm interested in how the bride perceives herself. And that's why I say yes, the dress is interesting. But she's got an image in her head. More often than not, that image is wrong. But there's nothing wrong with having the image in their head. So the girls that I play for, you know, they've done all of that with the dressmakers. That's fine. And they say, this is what I'm going to wear. They usually show me a photograph of themselves wearing it. I had one girl who just got out of a dress right there and put it on right there. Now that's trust for you. You've got to gauge how they perceive themselves. Some girls are worried about whether they're going to be enough. And the thing that I have to point out to them is you are enough. Now, how do you perceive yourself? What I actually want generally for every bride I play is grand and royal because we all like etiquette and people don't listen that closely really to music. It's one thing that I've put in my book. Um, but I think that in this situation, what most people never get is grand. So I tell girls that they are the most expensive girl in my life in that moment. And I want expensive. That's my other word for grand. Because if I say grand, I frighten them. So I just say expensive. All girls want to be expensive. The idea of taking your man shopping and taking every penny out of his wallet just for you. You know, expensive. We want to be expensive. So I tell girls, you're going to be expensive. Whether you have twinkle, twinkle, little star or you have somewhere over the rainbow, whatever I'm going to do, it's going to be expensive. I'm going to play chords that are rich. The tune is going to sing. It's going to be emotional. It's going to be powerful. So I try to sell to them that they are enough. Some girls want to be noticed, and they've been excited about this ever since they were two. Many girls make a point of telling me that they didn't do this. And I always say to them, it's okay. It's okay if you don't feel girly and pathetic and dizzy. It's fine, okay? But you're still going to walk in on the arm of your father or your mother or uh, a, another person that's significant to you in that moment. So whether you want to live the dream or you don't want to live the dream, I'm telling you, I'm bringing my A game to the table. Get used to it, okay? If you want to sneak through and be nondescript, then I've got 632 other guys who are looking for work, who want to earn my money, they will play for you. And I'll stay at home and watch the soccer on the TV because I don't like giving my soccer up. So what I'm trying to do is tell them that they are worth something because I'm there. This is your day. And I want you to grasp it because you don't know it now, but in five years' time, you're going to be pushing your trolley around a supermarket, shouting at the children, arguing with your husband about whether you can have a bottle of Prosecco 
while he wants six bottles of Budweiser and the money won't stretch that far. And then you remember that you were arguing about whether you were going to have two pigs or three pigs or whether you were going to spit roast the chicken or you were going to grill the chicken. And then you'll say, Ashley, I wish we could go back to those days when we could afford to have three pigs. So what I'm saying to them is that this is a moment in time. This is a moment in time. You've earned the right to walk down the aisle and have the same quality of wedding as Harry and Meghan had and Diana and Charles and all those other people that we see in the magazine and we get all dewy-eyed and, and emotional. And This is your Hollywood moment. I'm bringing everything Hollywood to the table, right? Not too much, not too little, but it's going to feel expensive. Obviously, I never have a 10-minute conversation with my girls. They're never going to say, can I have Yesterday by the Beatles? And can I have something from Katy Perry in the sign of the register? And why not something from Green Day when we go out? And I just say, that's great. Number one, number two, number three. Have a look at box number seven. And have a look at box number five. Because that is not what I'm there for. They might as well just have a take. What I want them to do is to experience. It's the experience of the music. Now, it's important to say, I don't frighten the hell out of these girls or overpower them. But you're also saying the doors to your dream are not locked because they're really thinking, I saw Megan on the TV. I wondered if I could have that. Yes, you can. There are no barriers. That's why I do this job. I always say to people, right, you're the queen. And as far as I'm concerned, you're having all of that. And I'm turning up and you're going to feel special and you're going to walk with a spring in your step because you're worth it. I love all of that. It's so lovely that you set a precedent, not only in your style, but also for making sure that everyone, specifically the bride, but everyone feels like this is an important day. You talk about making brides, you know, feel like they're a princess. They're the most important thing for the day. And I have a, an interesting question for you on that note, which is for your own wedding. How did you do that for your wife? <laughs> I married her. No. <laughs> um, we discussed everything. She was very clear in her head about many, many things. When your mother has been um, fitting up brides, she's the lady in the village who everybody went to. Um, you know, she, she loved it. She was good at it. So she saw lots and lots of girls standing in their brow and knickers in the back room, having the tape going around them. So she knew in her head about what she wanted. Obviously, I knew how the machinery worked. So you know, very few people were able to sway us from a particular route. You know, because at that point, I had been playing for weddings for over 25 years. So I've got 26 years experience. Tell me what you know, and I'll tell you what I know. It's like, you know, like two gunslingers at noon, you know, <laughs> You've got two water pistols and I've got 16 air rifles. Which one do you think is going to blow up the army? But let me hear how your guns work. Right. Okay. Now, do you want to hear my guns or should we just call it quits? Um, but, um, yeah, my wife was very, very clear about what she wanted. And her big thing was that she wanted to have a carousel, which we rode on. And I wanted the band that I had for my graduation at the Royal Academy of Music. And we had a couple of trumpeters to play her into the church. Uh, I wanted it to feel like a, a royal wedding. So when we were ready, so you could hear the trumpeters going, 
I said, boys, just go on for ages. Yeah, I don't care what you play, just go on for ages. Because everybody be going, oh my God. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember when Princess Diana came for the very first time uh, to London. Uh, that that was my experience of seeing somebody famous. Uh, we had Michael Jackson at the Madame to Swords, and then a few weeks later, Princess Diana. I just remember these trumpets playing. So when it's when we're imported, there's trumpets playing a fanfare. So I wanted my wife to have this huge fanfare playing before she had Here Comes the Bride. And uh, even my best man, he looked at me and went, oh, my God, what was that? I said, it's the fanfare. He wasn't expecting all of that, you know. So everybody stiffened up, you know. <clears throat> um, we wanted that feeling. So she got everything that she wanted. Um and and uh, you know we learned we learned that you can have two or three things in a wedding, and you can't yeah everything, but stick out for the two or three things. So we stuck out for the two or three things. But yeah, my wife was very very happy. I'm not shocked by the answer. I mean, it sounds exactly like after hearing everything else for the other brides, that sounds exactly like what your wife would have. It's definitely a day for fanfare, so it's extremely appropriate. You've got your new vice president, who is a symbol of power for women everywhere. And I, I put a post on my Facebook page, and I said to my girls, um, Lucy and Alice, who are 14 and 11, that this is a great moment of symbolism. Alice was born the day that um, Barack Obama was declared the president of the United States in January 2009. It's a very powerful day. Um, I mean, as a man of color, yes, of course, I'm going to say that. But I look, I, I, I've always looked at the collective. Um, I'm here for everybody. I know that, you know, there's the narrative of Black Lives Matter. For me, every life matters. People talk about uh, racism and everybody has challenges in life. And there, there are some very horrendous experiences for people of certain ethnicities. You know, I've played all over England. You know, you've got some uh, some trailer parks. Um, there are people who live in that kind of accommodation who feel as if they're being... They're made to feel that they're below. If a person approaches me, I don't know where they live. I don't know who they are, but I take time to find out who they are. And I still say to them, you've asked me to play for you. So it is my privilege to play for you. You've allowed me to become a part of your family. That is a massive privilege. You know, everybody at every single level is worth something. And what playing at weddings has taught me is if you're looking at a crowd of people, there are always people on the fringes. There's always one guest that's trying to sneak away from that big photo. They won't miss me. These people are practiced at staying on the fringes. They don't think that they're entitled. Imposter syndrome is the phrase that I've heard used. A lady came up to me when I was playing the piano. I said, what would you like me to play? And she said, oh, well, you don't want to play anything for me. I'm not important. You are important. You smell lovely. You look lovely. Now, what would you like me to play? She said, oh, she said no, no, no. I said, yes, yes, yes. I said, I'm not going anywhere until you say. My husband said she loves the Beatles. And I played um, Hey Jude. Well, I think I played about four tunes. And um, Let It Be. As soon as I played Let It Be, the tears were rolling down her cheeks. And I said, what was that? She said it was my father's favourite. Um, she said, thank you for doing that. And I gave her a hug. 
And she said, that has really made my day. Now, if I hadn't have insisted, she would never have got to share that memory with me. We unlocked that memory, which actually meant something, but she didn't think it was worth bringing into the open. I know people are very, very private, and I respect that. But maybe she was sent in that moment for that experience. So it's fascinating for me to see the peripheral people. Everybody gathered is worth something because they have been invited. Everybody is exactly the same. They're exactly the same. They're all watching the Kardashians, the Simpsons. They all think Donald Trump is, uh, you know, six sandwiches short of a full picnic. Um, arrogant. Everybody thinks Joe Biden is a nice guy. We're all sitting in the living room pretending that we know everything about world politics. We all are experts in our living rooms, our lounges, our sitting rooms. We're all the same. We're just people. Um, Diana's brother, who lives here, he was with me in the shop. And he's just a man buying his newspaper and his cakes. The man in the shop's got his cakes there for him. There you go. Thank you very much. And he's just a man. And I said to the man next to me, you know, that's Princess Diana's brother. And he went, what, him? I said, yeah, him. And he doesn't say, I'm Princess Diana's brother. He's, I'm, just buying, I'm just buying my cakes, man. I'm, I've just seen those chocolate ones with the cherries on top. That's all he's thinking about. And that's all I think about when the wife goes out and she doesn't know that I'm um, pop into the shop for the chocolate cake with the cherry on top. You know, we're all exactly the same. I think that sentiment alone that, you know, we're just people, we're just human beings buying cake and living our lives enhances <laughs> what you've said, which is we should be grand on the day that we are not at the supermarket arguing and buying cake. We should take that one day that we actually get to be the queen, be the princess, be the prince, be the king. And every person at that wedding, whether they're getting married or not, if they're there, that wedding's for them. And it's important that everyone rises to that occasion. And I think that's so, so indicative of what you've been saying. So I, I absolutely love that comparison. And I absolutely appreciate everything that you've said. So thank you so much for, for talking with us today. I enjoyed every moment of it, really, truly. I've had lots and lots of interviews, but never on the subject of how people feel. And it's a real big passion of mine. So to actually be able to express that has been absorbing and uh, very therapeutic as well. I'm writing a book called The Making of the Wedding's Maestro and exploring the journey. And I mean, there's so much to say, and maybe we'll talk another day about who we are and how we are and the value of what we are um, in relation to these episodes that have remained the same. Two people get married uh, through the eyes of a child and through the eyes of a mature adult. You know, um, people just see a person doing their best. They don't see a man of colour, they do not see a man, they see a person, a human being, hopefully with a good soul and integrity. That's what my father said to me before he died, you know, be the best person you can. And, uh, and, and, and that's all you can do, be the best you can. Your best is good enough. And that's what I'll continue to say to my girls. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, choosingyourreflection.com, where we unravel the mystery of the perfect wedding outfit. 
Check back next week when another beautiful soul takes on the journey of choosing their reflection. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.